Well, good morning, everyone. I invite you to open your Bible to the book of Romans, and we're in chapter number eight. Those online, I encourage you to get your Bible and follow along. We're going to look at several passages of Scripture today, so if you'll find with me uh, your Bible and open it and uh, turn, please, to Romans chapter number eight. We live in a world with much uncertainty, don't we? We live in a world where there's a lot of things that happen. There's the threat of things that, things that we see that are threatening, things that we don't see that are threatening. It causes us to feel anxiety and anxiousness. We're not certain what tomorrow will bring, and indeed that's always been true. And what would happen this afternoon, we don't know what might happen in our lives in the afternoon. This week, I heard about a man, a brother of one of our members, who, who simply ate his dinner, sat down in his lounge chair, turned on the TV, and when his wife went to get him later, he was gone. You never know what's going to happen into this world, and, and we've seen terrible things and wonderful things. In a post-pandemic world, who would have thought about all of the changes that we would experience in the pandemic? Who would have thought before 2020 that we would go through a time where all the churches were closed for a short period, for a period of time? Who would have thought that we would experience a situation after the pandemic where 30 to 40 percent less people attend church almost all churches. Who would have thought that we would see inflation at such a ravaging pace? We live in a world of heartaches and groans. Who would have thought that we would see Europe at war again? Who would have thought that we might see threatening, threatening in this lifetime another world war? We live in a world of heartbreak, difficulty, groans, trials, and tribulations. And so it was even in the Apostle Paul's day. We live in a world of disappointments and failures, yet we live in a world of joyous celebrations Amen. and happiness and meaningful work and pleasure. So sorrow and hope are in this broken world. Paul writes in the 28th verse of chapter 8, We know all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Amen. So in verse 28, he says, the Holy Spirit is working with us. Actually, I think there should be a conjunction at the beginning of verse number 28, and some translations have it that way. And it says, and we know, and we know. In the middle of tribulations, in the middle of difficulties, connecting this verse with what was said just previously. That we live in a world, but the Holy Spirit is in us. The Holy Spirit, we live in a world with difficulty and tra tragedy and trial and heartache, but the Holy Spirit is in us. Praise God. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. The Holy Spirit comforts us. The Holy Spirit reminds us of Jesus' words. The Holy Spirit convicts us of what is right and wrong. The Holy Spirit guides us and he hears us and he introduces 
he interprets for us. He, God, is for us. And we are not alone in this world. So what is it that we can know for certain? Verse 28, with so much uncertainty, what can you know for sure? Verse 28 is reinforcing what Paul's been saying in all of chapter 8 and will continue to say that we have assurance of our salvation and what God has started, he's going to carry out. Amen? Isn't that a good hope for all of us? And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. He is at work. God is at working. We know all things work together for good. Five unshakable truths today, things that we know for certain. Number one, just look at the text. God is at work in our lives. Amen. Aren't you glad that God's at work in our lives? God's working in our world. We don't live in some cosmic universe where God created it and then just created some laws of nature and then, then walked away from it and is not involved in his created world. God knows us personally, and he is working in our world. He created this world by his own hand and for his own pleasure, and he created us and placed us in this world in which we live. We're going to look at several scripture verses today. Would you look with me to the book of Colossians chapter number one? Colossians chapter one, verse 15. Look what the scripture says. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That's Jesus. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or authorities or rulers, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things and by all things, by him, all things hold together. I'm telling you, Christ not only created the world, he's involved in the world, and Jesus in his own power is holding this world together. God is at work in his world. He knows you by name. Did you know God knows your name? He knows everything about you. You're not invisible to him. He's not distant from you. He created you, loves you, cares about you, knows all about you. In Luke's gospel, chapter number 12, Luke's gospel, chapter number 12, verse number four, understand that he's working in this world and he's working in your life. He says, I say to you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body and after that can do nothing more. He said, don't you be afraid. Don't you live in fear. But he says, I will show you the one to fear. Fear him who has authority to throw people into hell and after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. Aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight. Did you know God knows every sparrow? He knows them by name. Not only that, the hairs of your head are all counted. The word there means they're all numbered. God has a name for every hair on your head. For some of you, that's not a lot to remember, but others, it is. And you know what? He's got every hair on your head numbered. He knows all about you. There's nothing. Don't you be afraid. Aren't you worth more than many sparrows? Listen, God's involved in your life. He's working in your life. God is working on you and in you. He knows you personally. We just sang about this. And uh, look with me to Psalm 139. 
you have your Bible, look with me to Psalm, or just write it down, Psalm 139, and come back to it. It's just one of those great affirming truths that that God is involved with us individually and personally, and he knows all about it. He says, you, Lord, you have searched me and known me. God knows you. You know me when I sit down, when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from afar. God not only knows you, he knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're going through. You observe my travels and my rest. You're aware of all my ways. Before words on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You've encircled me. You've placed your hand on me. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It's lofty. I am unable to reach it. Where can I escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? There's nowhere that I can go that you're not there. You see, God is with you, understands everything. He's intimately aware of what's going on in your life. Amen. And he cares for you. He formed you. He made you. The Bible is a whole story about how God is purposefully working in this world in which he's created and how he's purposefully working in you and in your life. And God, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Amen. God was working at the exact right time that he sent Jesus Christ and he was born under the law. He was born of a woman and he died that we might be redeemed and adopted as God's own children. God is involved in his world. God so loved the world that he sent, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen. God is working in you. He loves you. God is at work. Yes, Lord. God's working in your life today. Amen. I'm sure of this, Paul writes, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Amen. He knows you. He loves you. He's working on you. Tell your neighbor, God's working on you. He's working overtime on some of you. Amen. Not only is he working, he is working for our good. That's the second point. The second assurance that we have is God is working for our God good. You say, Brother Tim, how do you know this? Number one, God is wholly good. He's completely good. And he works, his works in our lives are an expression of his goodness. He works. And all of his works are calculated to advance his people for good. He is working through his providence and he's working through his grace in dealing with us for our ultimate well-being. And when you don't believe that and you don't believe that God is good and you don't believe that God is working for my good, then you build up a resentment toward God and a despair in your soul. Now, I look out here today and I see, I see, I know some of you are going through difficult stuff in your life, real pain, real sorrow, real grief, real trials, 
real heartaches. But God is a good God and he's working in your life today. He's present with you here today. And he's working for your good. He's working until we die. He's working until Christ's coming again. And his final purpose is our salvation and our transformation. Amen. Look with me to verse 29. Let's just jump ahead in the text. Notice what he says for those, <clears throat> verse 29, for those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that you would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. How is he working for your good? Listen to what Paul says. First of all, he says, for those he foreknew. He says he foreknew you, meaning he set his heart on you beforehand. He chose you. He marked you off, literally. He foreknew you. And then he predetermined. God in his sovereignty, he predetermined that you would be conformed to the image of his son. God is at work in you. He's working in you for good. And God has a plan. And that plan goes from eternity to eternity. And God, he in his foreknowledge, predetermined that he was going to work in your life. And the, this is the purpose for which he's working in your life, notice in verse number 29, to be conformed to the image of his son. God is determined, now listen to me, listen. God is determined to make you live, act, and love like Jesus. Wow. His whole mission is to make you look like his son. So he's working. He's working hard on you to change you, to make you, to look like his son. He works in all of us who've trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior. He's not only working on you, he called you. He reached out to you and he initiated salvation into your life. Amen. He called you. You didn't take the initiative, he took the initiative, and he called you. Anybody have somebody pocket dial you? You might use another term. It's a mistake. You get pocket dialed. I've been the pocket dialer. And I've been dialed both ways. And that's, it's an awkward kind of thing that happens. Somebody calls, you recognize the name, and you answer it. And they realize they didn't mean to call you. And then when you've been pocket dialed, or you've been pocket dialed, you might even answer, and then they just hang up. And then you might call them back and say, did you call me? And then they might sheepishly say, yeah, it was a mistake. I didn't really want to talk to you. <laughs> That's sort of a weird moment, isn't it? 
But God has called you, and it's not a pocket dial. He's called you personally, successfully. It's a purposeful call. And he's called you and he has justified you. That's what Paul said. And then the string we'll look at next week. He not only has justified you, he will glorify you. God has demonstrated his love for us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He justified you, made you right with God. And he will ultimately glorify you. And he will appear and we will be like him because we will see him as he is. We'll see him face to face. Changing us. God's not done with you. Third statement. God works for our good in all things. The word all things, it means through it all, in it all, all things, things that are good, things that are pleasant, things that are sufferings, things that cause groaning in our life. God is working through in all these things. In chapter 8, verse number 17, he says, this uh, 17, he says, if children also heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified with him. In this world, we have sufferings. Verse number 23. Not only that, but we ourselves have the spirit as the first fruits. We groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. We groan in this world. Even those groanings, even those sufferings, God works them for our good. He works through the pleasant blessings of life for our good. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes about these twin things. Notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in verse number 16, Therefore, we do not give up, even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us absolutely incomparable weight of glory. We do not focus on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. See, the new has come. Everything's from God, who's reconciled us to himself through Christ and given us a ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he's committed to us a message of reconciliation. God is working with you with eternal blessings, wonderful, pleasant blessings of salvation. Think about the children of Israel. They were in captivity. They were enslaved. They were being abused. They were a a people not in their own land. And God rescues them, raises up Moses and Aaron, and with his mighty hand, rescues them. Before their very eyes, they see Egypt come under the wrath and the judgment of God until Egypt lets 
uh, Egypt releases, by Pharaoh's command, releases the children of Israel. Not only are they released, they are blessed as the people give them great bounty and gifts as they go on their trip. God is blessing them. He guides them with a pillar of fire and a cloud, and he's guiding them every step of the way. He opens up the Red Sea and takes them through it. He destroys their enemies in the same Red Sea. He leads them. He's present with them. He do, he's protecting them. He gives them shade for the sun, and he gives them fire to warm them at night. He is there with them. He destroys their enemies. He provides their water. He provides sustenance that they need. He gives them manna. He gives them quail. Yet in the midst of all of it, they complain and gripe and disobey and rebel. And God then brings difficulty into their life. And these difficulties include disease and hardship and even death for some. Does he do that because he hates it in them? No, he does it because he loves them. He has given them blessing, but awful gift difficulty. But he's weaving them together to change them to be his people. So God works in us with great, wonderful, glorious blessings, but also correction. So we will depend upon him. He works through trials. He works through hardships and difficulties. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what's happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. What does he say? He said, listen, I'm in prison. And I'm suffering for something that I didn't really do wrong. But he said, God's using it. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. Wow. He said, God is even taking hard and difficult circumstances and he's using them for his glory in great ways. Now, how does God use difficulties? Or maybe why does he do it? If you, these are not in the notes, but if you want to scratch, scratch them down, you can. First of all, he awakens us when he brings difficulty in our life. It awakens us to our dependence on God. When everything seems to be going really easy peasy, and there seems to be no real hardship or difficulties, we are tempted to live for ourselves, We are tempted to live as if we're not dependent upon him. And that we are tempted to act independently and rebelliously toward God. And our attitude becomes, because of this sin nature here, it's my life, I'll live it how I want to live it. But when your world is shaken down to its core and difficulty and hardship comes, you learn to turn to him and to depend upon him and say, Lord God, I need you. Isn't that true? Pain 
moves us to seek help. And in that regard, it's a good thing. For instance, in my body, I may have something wrong that I don't even know. Maybe there's a tumor growing and I didn't know it. But then when pain comes, pain moves me to eventually go to a doctor. And that doctor does a series of tests. And then those tests reveal there was something has been working bad in me that needed exposure. Sometimes there's things working wrongly in us. God brings pain into our life that exposes a problem in our life so that he might change us for our good. Amen. Secondly, it reminds us of our dependence on him every day. You see, we're frail and vulnerable and dependent, not independent. Thirdly, it humbles us. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, Lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a difficulty, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Humility is one of the great safeguards of a Christian life. When we see our need for strength, our need for help, that's when we're on the road to forgiveness and, and healing in our life. Fourthly, it helps us to know God. Now, this is an important point. Stay with me here. When trials and difficulties comes, it helps me to know God in a way I would not normally have known him. What do you say? What do you mean, Pastor? Well, when your world is shaken, and, and there's some of you, even in this room today, that your world is in the midst of this. And you cast yourself on him and you pray, and it's groanings that you can't even utter. It doesn't even make sense, but God knows your heart and prays for you. In those moments of greatest sorrow, you know the tenderness of God. You know the comfort of God. You know the consolation of his presence. You know his patience and his long-suffering and his nearness to you. And these sweet attributes, you know because he ministers to you in the most difficult times of your life. Isn't that good news? So you know God at a whole different level. The other reason that trials or difficulties may come into our life and he works it for good is it sets us apart from worldliness. We don't get too... We're we don't hold on to this world too tightly. It makes you evaluate what's really important in your life. Amen. Many, 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 many years ago, I was visiting a young man who had uh, a terminal disease. And uh, when I went to visit him in his hospital room, 
The doctors had told him that his days indeed were numbered and that this disease would take his life in a short time. It was just the two of us in the room together. And he had a notepad. And in that notepad, there was a whole long list of stuff. And I said, what's this? He said, you know, I was just making a list of all the stuff I own. And he said, Brother Tim, a few months ago, all of that seems oh so important. But it doesn't matter at all today. Sometimes in the midst of trials and difficulties, it helps us understand what's really important in this world. And it's not stuff. It's our relationship with God and with one another. Amen. God even rules over evil things that come into our life. And he works them for good. He doesn't cause the evil things. Sin is never good. But God can use it. He can trump it. He can overrule it. What they mean for evil, God can work good. And some of you went through evil in your life, new evil, new hurt and pain. David is an illustration of sometimes even sin. God can trumpet. For instance, his adulterous liaison with Bathsheba and then his cover-up and lie and scheme and murder was evil. God doesn't leave him off the hook on that. What David did was evil and sinful and wrong. Yet God, in his sovereignty, takes Bathsheba, who's really Uriah's wife. And the Messiah comes through that lineage. God's trumping evil with good. Fourthly, he works all things together for good for those who love him. Now, there's some, these promises have a guardrail to them, a boundary, a definition for those who love him. He doesn't say for those who believe in him, that would seem like he might say that, or those who follow him are those who have faith in him. But he uses an unusual expression, he says, for those who love him. Often when love is used like this, it's speaking of God loving us, not us loving God. But it says, for those who love him. The promise is that he works all things together for good to those who love God. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9, it says, But it is written, What no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no human heart conceived, God has prepared these things for those who love him. Amen. Ephesians 6, 24 says, Grace be with all who have an undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you love him? In Deuteronomy 6, we're told we're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, 
with all of his strength. Do you love the Lord? Do you love the Lord Jesus? Do you love God in your life? What does it mean to love God? It doesn't mean just to believe in him. The demons do that. Do you love God? Listen, these promises, all things work together for good, that cannot be quoted by non-lovers of Jesus Christ. This promise is to us. Actually, they don't love God. They hate God. People that reject Christ hate him. They hate God. They're at enmity with God. They're at war with God. They don't love God. They love themselves. God came to redeem us. God came to save us. And listen, love is not just an emotion. This is not some feeling. It's not some sentimentality. To love God is not just to believe the facts about Christ. To love is to desire, if you want to write this down, to love God means to desire to please him, to live for his glory, to keep his commands. Love, trust in him. No matter what the circumstance, love says, I trust in you, God, because you are my Lord, my master, and my king. Hmm. Kind of a contrast in two people's attitudes toward God might be Job and Mrs. Job. You remember when Job's tragedy arrives and he loses everything. Listen to Job's response in verse number 20. Job stood up, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, he fell to the ground and worshipped. Saying, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will leave this life, the Lord gives the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And throughout all of this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. What great faith. He would still struggle. He would still wonder. He would still wrestle with why all of this is happening with his friends. But in the second chapter, his loving wife gives him some sweet counsel. In chapter 2, verse 9, she says to Job in the midst of his tragedy, Are you still holding to your integrity? Curse God and die. <laughs> wow. She has the gift of encouragement. <laughs> verse 10, listen to his response. You speak as a foolish woman speaks. Should we accept only good from God and not adversity? And throughout all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. Later, Job will say, though he slay me, I will trust in him. Amen. Can you simply say this morning, I don't understand what's happening to me, but I'm in the hands of God. I don't understand what he's doing, but he maketh no mistake. I don't know how he's working, but it's God who loves me. 
and he is love. And he holds me. And he's working good for me in my life. Love wants to obey God. Not only does it trust him, but it wants to obey him. It wants to please him. In 1 John chapter 5, First John chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. And this is how we know we love God's children, how we know that we love God's children when we love God and obey his commands. For this is what love for God is to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. In chapter number 4, 1 John 4, 9, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And if anyone says, verse 20, I love God yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Do you love God? Do you love your brothers and sisters? Do you want to please him? Are you obeying him? It's not just everybody that says they love God, follow God. And not everybody that says they're a believer is truly a believer. Real believers love God. Amen. And when you love God, you want to please him and obey him and you trust him and you love others. Fifthly, fifthly, God works all things together for the good of those who love God and called to his purpose. The Bible gives us a sense of God's call in two ways, and we don't have time to unpack this in great detail. But there's a general call of God that he makes to everyone. And then there's an effective call of God that he makes to those who are changed and saved. This general call is real and authentic. Paul preaching in Athens says, God hath commanded all men everywhere to repent. That call of God goes out to everyone. The Bible says many are called, but few are chosen. And we are to preach the gospel to every person and invite all people to come to Jesus. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And whoever will, let him come and drink of the water of life. All who are thirsty, let him come. And to everyone who hears, say, come. It's an invitation, come. 
the spirit and the bride, come. But all don't come. But those who do come are called by God in a way where he awakens us to our sin, awaken us to our lostness, where he puts his hand on us and we see Christ for who he is. And we repent of sin and turn to him and we are saved by grace, only grace and not our works. And we're saved for his glory. In chapter 1, verse number 7, Paul writes in Romans, to all who are in Rome, loved by God, called, called as saints, as holy ones. It is the call of God in your life. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 1 of Romans, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle and set apart from the gospel of God. You didn't find God. God found you. Amen. And your salvation is his work of grace in you. Yes, Lord. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9 says, And he has saved us. And called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he's given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Wow. Have you been called? These promises of Romans 8.28, they're for those that are called. Are you called? Have you heard his voice? Have you seen your bitterness, your sinfulness, your brokenness, your rebellion? Have you seen that Jesus is God's only son? Have you seen that he lived the perfect life and died a life, died in his life for, in his death for our life? Have you seen that this perfect man died on a criminal's cross, not for anything that he did? Do you see that he is there bearing your sins and my, my sins like a sacrificial lamb, lamb? Do you see that his blood is atoning us? For all of our sins. Do you see him dead and buried? Do you see him risen to life? Do you see he's Lord? And do you commit your life to him? Amen. Then you are called. And you've been apprehended by him. You've been arrested by him. He won't let you go. He keeps working in you. Changing you. Loving you. Changing you. And you're drawn to him because he's loved you. I hear thy welcome voice that calls me, Lord, to thee. For cleansing in thy precious blood that flowed on Calvary. And then the hymn writer writes this response. I am coming, Lord, coming now to thee. Wash me, cleanse me in the blood that flowed on Calvary. Hmm. Brother Tim, you don't know the evil done against me. How can all things work together for good? 
I may not know your story, all of it, but I know God. And evil doesn't trump the goodness and greatness of God. Joseph is a beautiful Old Testament story. Joseph was hated. Now, you, you may identify with Joseph. He was hated by his own family. He grew up in major dysfunction. In his family, there were lots of secrets. In his family, there were favorites. In his family, there were cover-ups. In this family, there was revenge. In this family, there was murder. In this family, there was jealousy. In his family, there was rivalry among siblings. In his family, there were lies. Does that sound familiar to anybody? In his family, he was hated by his brothers. He was plotted against to murder him. He was sold into slavery. He was falsely accused as a slave of rape. Then he was thrown in prison and suffered in prison. And then God elevated him in prison among the jailers and the authorities there. But then he did good to others, but when he did good to others, they forgot him, and he suffered for a long time alone, and it all happened to him, and he kept trusting God. And then one day, God elevated him, and through wonderful grace out of prison, and he had the favor of Pharaoh and became second in command in all of Egypt. And then God caused a famine in Israel. And in that famine, his brothers and his father come to him for protection and for food. And Joseph reveals himself to them. But in that conniving, dysfunctional mindset... The brothers all said, when the old man dies, he's going to kill us all. But Joseph said, what you meant for evil, God trumped it and worked it for good. Amen. That's a mighty God that works all things for good. Amen? Amen. These things we know. Now you can be certain today about the ultimate, even when most of us are uncertain about the immediate. The Christian does not know everything, but he knows one thing. That what God does, he does for good for us. You may groan in this world. You may suffer in this world. You may be perplexed in this world. And you may not even know how to pray. But one thing you do know. If God is for me, who can be against me? And he works all things for good. For those who love him. I'm just going to quote, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to leave with a quote, and actually I'm going to include the quote in the prayer. And so when I pray, I'm going to quote part of a prayer from a pastor in the past. 
But I ask you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Lord, I don't know which way to turn or to go. I do not understand why these things are happening. And I do not know exactly what to ask for at this moment. But I know this. In spite of my ignorance, in spite of everything that's happening to me, this and everything else is working together for my good. Father, may we take that same prayer and make it our own. To trust you no matter what the circumstance. And that your great love is working for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.